At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. Thanks for tuning into our series, The Follower's Trail Guide, Navigating the Path of Jesus, where we're asking the question, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? As we walk through Jesus' farewell discourse to his followers in the book of John, we'll learn to follow in the steps of Christ as he marks out the way of discipleship for us. Well, good morning, church family. I have a confession to make today. I'm going to begin there. We are a NASCAR family. Yep, it's true. Each Sunday throughout the summer, our family would go home after church. We'd have some lunch together. We'd go into the family room, turn on the NASCAR race, and watch guys make a series of left-hand turns over and over and over again. Now, I confess to you, this has not always been the case with our family. This is something that happened during the pandemic when all the stick and ball sports were kind of halted. You couldn't watch the Tigers. Pistons weren't playing. You couldn't do any of that. So the guys in the cars, well, they, they kept their sport going. And so uh, we, we kind of followed as they, as they pressed on. And what we did is we found this kind of interesting, actually. And so what we did is we decided that we were going to follow, all four of us were going to pick our favorite driver, pick a favorite car, and move on forward, and kind of that would be our guy. Now, I'm guessing that some of you might say, well, wait a second, how in the world could you pick a favorite when you just started? Well, there are a number of factors, actually. A number of factors, the way the car looked, the paint scheme, the company, splashed all over the side of the car. So all four of us actually now have a driver and a team that we root for. Aren't you excited? Now, some of you might be thinking, what does this have to do with God? What does this have to do with worship? What does this have to do with anything faith-related? Well, the reason I bring up NASCAR is actually quite simple. You see, the drivers provide us with a vivid illustration of what it is that we are looking at today in God's Word, and it is the word representation. Representation. So, drivers in NASCAR represent different products like M&M's. If you follow the M&M driver, what you'll find is when he pulls into his stop, each member of his crew is a different colored M&M. It's true. Then you have other race teams that are sponsored and carry the, the side of uh, Menards down the side of their car, Bass Pro Shops. Then, you, of course, you have the auto parts uh, of Napa or oil companies like Pennzoil. And so what happens after driving their 500-mile, uh, let's be fair, it's a billboard for 500 miles, and afterwards, what happens? When you go to the end of the race, they always stick the microphone in the guy's face, and what does he say? Well, you know what? The Menards body armor Ford Mustang really performed well today. He's representing each of the teams or the companies that sponsor him. There's Menards, splashed all over the side. Body armor, smaller, but I still need to mention it. Ford Mustang, you know what I'm driving. You got to establish all of those things because that's who they're representing on the racetrack and to the racing community. And this is why we can all learn 
from our NASCAR-driving friends when it comes to matters of faith. Because it causes us to ask the question of ourselves, who is it that we represent? Whose name do we splash all over our lives? When others see us, who do they associate you with? It's a fair question, isn't it? Do we represent the Lord Jesus? Or when someone sees us, would they look at us and say, oh, I'm not even really sure that that guy is a person of faith, but I certainly know he's about this. Who do we represent In just a moment, we're going to be turning to John's gospel to see what Jesus says about the importance of representation. But before we do that, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank You for inviting us here today. That as we turned off 59 and pulled into the parking lot, some people noticed perhaps that, hey, those people worship. They're church-going folks. And then as we walk in these doors, we're rubbing elbows and chatting with other people also on the journey of faith. So, God, as we walk out that journey, we pray that You would guide us and lead us into Your truth today. We've prayed. We've responded to truth. We've sang songs of praise, but right now, God, we desire that you would meet with us through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the teaching of your Word. God, we stand upon your Word. It is true. It is truth. and has everything we need to walk out our faith in the week ahead. Everything. So, God, give us eyes to see clearly this truth. Give us ears to hear clearly this truth. And then, God, we ask for humble, genuine, surrendered hearts before the reality of this truth. And we pray this in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. Well, this morning we are going to continue our sermon series. You'll see it on the slide behind me. It is the Follower's Trail Guide is the name of the series, Navigating the Path of Jesus. And John's gospel account is going to be our guide, and the words of Jesus are going to light our path for the journey ahead. Now, as I mentioned last week, we were reading the words of Jesus that he gave to his disciples, his closest friends, in his final hours. If you enter into the text, we'll find that what we're going to read today and what we saw last week and kind of moves us into this week is that the scene we're looking at is pretty intense. The dialogue is rather direct, and the teaching, well, it's going to cut right to our souls. So, let's begin the journey by remembering where it is was that we started last week. What we saw last week was Jesus gathering with His friends, the disciples, and then what He did is He took a towel and a basin, and He began to wash the feet of His friends, wash the feet of His disciples. If you know anything about that culture, that was the task of a servant, and yet the Messiah is the one who is washing feet. We looked at the significance of that last week. But today we're going to turn to the second half of that feast. And I'm going to warn you, what we're reading today is pretty dark. 
takes a dark turn. It's intense. So I want to encourage you to grab your Bible, and what we're going to do is turn to John chapter 13, and we're going to pick it up at verse 21. John 13, verse 21. It's a long story, and so if you'd like to read along, you can do so on page 900 in our ESV Church Bibles, or go ahead and follow along on the screen behind me. Here is what John writes. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples whom Jesus loved was reclining at table at Jesus' side, and so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. And Jesus said to him, what, are you go- what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should go give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new new commandment I give to you, that you would love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And so Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. This story from John's gospel includes some of the most significant figures in all of the New Testament. Obviously, Jesus is at the center. He's driving the story forward. He's the focus of this time. And you have Judas takes center stage for just a season in the middle of this dark drama. And then, of course, there's the emotionally charged Peter. We've already engaged with him in last week's text. We're going to see him here again, and he's going to close out this section. But the question we have to consider as we read this text today is what are we to make of it all? 
I mean, when we read this and we see this first century story kind of roll out in front of us, how does it impact the way you and I live today in the 21st century? What does it have to do with you and with me as we seek to walk out our faith? Well, I believe it has everything to do with us. Because I believe what this story highlights is the real-life struggle of following Jesus. The real-life struggle of following Jesus. I mean, let's, let's take a, an inventory of what's happening in the text. In spite of all the time that the disciples had spent with Jesus, walking with Him, talking with Him, listening to Him teach, eating with Him, serving with Him, they showed that they still did not understand. They still didn't get it. So, White Lake family, be encouraged today. If you don't fully understand, you don't fully grasp what's happening on the pages of Scripture, clearly you are not alone. But what we are going to do today, and while it is hard to do, is to dig in to see what God's Word has for us as we gather for worship and as we open our minds to the truth of God's Word. So, let's dig in a little more intently and look again at verse 21 together. So after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit, and he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. I want to pause right there. I want to make this story a little more personal for us, okay? You're in this story. You have done life with this group of people for multiple years. These are your friends. These are the people that you have sat with over dinner. You have celebrated things. You have grieved together. You've cried together. You've prayed together, and you've sat under the teaching of Jesus. You've experienced all of that together. And Jesus said, someone is going to betray me. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. And so Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. You'd want to know that too, wouldn't you? I know I would. It'd be intense, it would be heavy, and yet I'd want to know as well. So that disciple leaned back and asked Jesus, Lord, who is it? Who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him, Judas, and Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Jesus knew what was happening in the moment, and he said, I know what you're about to do. Do it, and do it quickly. But no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. The other members of Jesus' friend group did not understand what was happening. No one at the table knew, in verse 28, why he said this to him. Some thought it was because Judas had the money bag. He was the treasurer, and Jesus was telling him, hey, we need some food for the feast. Go buy something with that. Or, hey, there are, there are needy people out there. Go support them, help them. 
give to the poor. But after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out. Don't miss the last sentence in this portion of the text. And it was night. Betrayal is at the heart of the first portion of of this text. The betrayal of a friend, the betrayal of one who had been there from the start, the betrayal of one who was trusted by the group. We know that you're not going to give the resources to someone you do not trust. There was betrayal among friends, and that betrayal was centered squarely on Jesus. Who is it? Jesus answered, it is him to whom I will give the morsel of bread when I have dipped it. When he dipped the morsel, he looked at Judas and he gave it to Judas. And then after he had taken the morsel, verse 27 says, Satan entered into him. This highlights something that we rarely talk about at church. We just don't enter into it in tangible ways like perhaps we, we used to in the church. Where does this type of temptation come from? The text tells us that it is the activity of the evil one. The schemes of Satan to lead people into sin, away from the light and into darkness. That's what we can grab a hold of from this text. So men, women, children of faith, it is difficult to walk in the ways of Jesus because we are tempted by Satan and we struggle with self-interest. That's what we see in this act of Judas. He cared first about himself. You see, Judas had already made the deal. That's how Jesus knew. Judas had already made the deal. There was financial gain for him to betray Jesus. There was personal gain that he would experience if he just ratted out his friend. Sell out your friend Jesus and you will receive a sack of money. Self-interest was Judas's God. Here's the crazy part. Jesus knew this. He was aware of the scheme of Judas, and yet he offered him one final chance. He held out that bread. Take the bread or surrender everything and confess before Jesus, I screwed up. But instead of surrendering everything, Judas grabs the bread, grabs a hold of the temptation. Pastor Bruce Milne writes this. He said, Judas, in his final act of defiance, closes his heart against the light and turns away into the darkness that has no end. Do not miss the imagery that we see in verse 30. After receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. Judas is in the presence of light. 
and he left and he walked into the darkness. He turned his back on light and he walks into the darkness, which is a fitting act of a betrayer. Before we move on from this text, I want us to stop. Because the point is too significant for you and I to just breeze past, too significant for us to overlook. Where are you being tempted to turn from God and to walk in darkness? Where is that for you? We live in a broken and fallen world. We're a fallen people. And so the reality is we are struggling with something today. What is that for you? I don't know what that is, but God does. And the fact that you're here today, that is a beautiful picture of God's common grace for you. He knows what you're struggling with, and yet He gives His favor to you to even breathe your next breath. That is God's grace for you. But don't stay there. Don't receive that just haphazardly. May I encourage you to turn from your self-interest, turn from the temptation, whatever that might be, turn from your sin and run directly to the light, run directly to Jesus, run directly to the one who loves you so much that He spared His life on a cross for you to give you life. Confess your sin Shine a light on it. Bring it out of the darkness and bring it into His light. Friends, believe Jesus' mercy and forgiveness and love are for you. They're for you. So in the quietness of these next few moments, I'm going to continue on in the text. But if God is tugging on your heart through the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning, just pause your head right where you are and confess that sin and ask Jesus to fill you. Ask Jesus to give you the strength to turn away. Surrender that to Christ today. Now let's return to the story. We're going to see another challenge of following Christ when we follow our own self-confidence. We're going to skip down to verse 36 and uh, pick up the story of the Apostle Peter, verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And so Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow until you have denied me three times. You see, when we are tempted by our self-confidence, that's when you and I, like Peter, walk in our flesh. Let's unpack that verse a little bit. Instead of listening to the words of Jesus in the moment, where I am going, Jesus says, you cannot follow me. Very clear, very direct. Peter in his self-confidence, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I want to go. I want to follow you. I can do it. Instead of listening, 
humbly submitting himself to what Jesus is teaching him. And then instead of waiting upon the Lord, Peter pushes his agenda. Listen to the words, I will lay down my life for you. I'm Peter, I'll do that. Jesus sees through the pride. And he asks him the question, will you lay down your life for me? You can hear the sarcasm, can't you? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And that's exactly what happened before the night was over, before the rooster crowed to start the new day. Peter would deny knowing him and being associated with Jesus. That was Peter. That's a tough story. It's a tough story to read because the fact of the matter is most of us can probably identify with Peter really, really well. It's not a stretch. We know the struggle. We desire to walk in God's ways. We long to be holy in our thoughts and in our actions, and yet we fail because so many of our actions find their root in deep-seated pride, deep-seated self-confidence. Theologian D.A. Carson helps us understand the irony of this pride that we see in Peter's life. He says, tragically, The boast that he would never deny his Lord, even to the point of death, displays not only gross ignorance of human weakness, but a certain haughty independence that is the seed of denial itself. So, Woodside family, I want us to consider Peter's story of self-confidence, but to kind of do so in a little bit more of a personal way, not to just kind of dismiss it and go, oh, that's just Peter. He's just being Peter again. Move it out of that category and consider it as how Peter's actions just might align with your actions and mine. You see, Peter's actions model for us what is one of the most blatant and popular sins in our world today, and that is one of self-sufficiency. I've got this. I'm good. I can do it alone. I'm a do-it-yourselfer kind of guy. I can handle this. When it comes to matter of faith, let me say this in the most loving way that I can. No, you can't. No, you can't. I can say that because the apostle Peter couldn't. Martin Luther couldn't. Billy Graham couldn't. Your pastor can't. And neither can you. Neither can you. We need Jesus. We need Jesus both for our justification, that's when we experience salvation, but we also need Jesus for our sanctification, that is the walking out of our faith in consistent, faithful rhythms. We need Jesus for both. We need Jesus to walk in faithfulness in the face of the temptations that you will face tomorrow on your job, in the temptations that you will face in your community, at your school, or dare I say, in your home tonight. You and I need Jesus. Church, what Jesus exposes in Peter resides in all of us. It's pride and it's self-confidence. So may I encourage you to take a posture of submission 
of surrender, of humility before God. And watch what He does in the week ahead. Take that posture. Say, God, I need you. I need you to walk out my faith in the face of temptation. I need you. In this moment, I need you. In that space, if you do that, I want to put a dare out to you as a church, as a church family. Do that and see what God will do in your life. When we take that humble, open-handed, open-hearted posture, watch Him work in your life. But this leaves us with a pretty big question, doesn't it? I mean, really, this leaves us with a question. If Judas was tempted by Satan to follow his self-interest, if what we see from Peter and he's tempted to follow kind of his personal agenda because of his self-confidence, what are you and I to do? What are men, women, children who desire to please God, to desire to walk in God's ways, what are we to do? Let's look back to our text. We're going to go back up a few verses and pick it up at John 13, 31. When he, Judas, had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. But a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Judas has departed. Jesus is now in the place where he is making a few bold declarations. So let's unpack those together. Who is he? He has declared himself as the Son of Man. That's Jesus. What is happening? Well, now is the Son of Man glorified. It's happening in the moment. Well, where is Jesus going? Where I am going, you cannot come. Here's what I want you to think about. I want you to think about the cross. Okay? That's where he's going. And how the message of his love will be carried forward. How will that happen? New commandment I give to you. That you, that you might love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another by this, by doing this, by putting this into practice. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus' message is really quite simple. When our lives are God-centered, we will model Jesus' love. We will model Jesus' example of love if our lives are submitted to the work of God. Church, that's the heartbeat of the words of Jesus in the upper room. He says, I am the Son of Man, and I will be glorified. Tell others about me. How are we going to do that? Do it with actions of love. Put others before yourself. Speak well of others rather than gossip. 
sacrifice something that maybe you need so that someone else can have something. These are actions of love. You see, church, it is our faithful, dependent, consistent actions of love for one another that reveals who we are and who we represent. Because the world, the world will know who we follow by how we love one another. May we, may we represent Jesus well. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.